time, everybody. It is time for Apollos Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're going to be talking about trusting in God in tough times. For many of us, times are tough. We're going through difficult times as a culture, as an economy, as a world, wondering where things are headed, wondering what God's going to do with our families, with our jobs, with our health, with our mental state. What is God doing? And now we need to go back to the Word of God to see how we can trust in Him during tough times. But before we get to that, we have a word from our fabulous sponsors. Are you looking to buy or sell a home in the Chicagoland area? If so, I highly recommend calling Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate and her team. She comes with years of experience and loves people. Kathy's trustworthy and really does care about her clients, and I can testify to this because I am one of them. She's my agent. She met with us and learned what we were looking for, presented us with the best options, and helped us find what was right for us. And she didn't only help us purchase a home, but is regularly checked in to see how we are doing. She's attentive to your needs and style and comes alongside you to help you discover what is best for you. Give her a call or text today at 630-201-4664. That's 630-201-4664. That's Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate. Tell her Travis sent you. Today, we're going to be exploring the book of Lamentations. Let me say this. Lamentations is not an easy book. It's not one that we often go to. It's one that is filled with turmoil, people experiencing the consequences of their actions. They are feeling helpless and hopeless, but in the midst of all of it is hope. You might feel hopeless right now. You might feel helpless. You might feel that God doesn't care and that he is out there to judge you and take you out or to bring you down. And I want to let you know that that is not true. The reason that this passage exists, the reason that this book exists in the Bible is to show us a warning, but also to give us hope, to show us the consequences of our actions if we continue on down a road of disobedience. But more than that, it's to show that God is a God of hope, that God is a God of second chances. And I want to let you know that as we jump into this passage today, that our God is a God of love, a God of hope, and a God of healing. So let's keep that in mind as we explore this together. Several years ago, I was preaching at a church in Swickley, Pennsylvania. The church was an old Baptist church of about 25 people and were looking for ways to connect to the community around them. Now, the people of the church were blue-collar, hardworking, fun-loving people. They were great. But the community that the church was in was extremely wealthy and very different than the people that were in the church. You see, many of them had grown up in the community when it had been blue-collar and the community around it had shifted over the years. And as time went on, many very wealthy, affluent CEOs of different corporations as well as professional athletes moved into the area, while the church largely stayed the blue-collar church it had always been. And the church had begun to suffer. They began to decrease over time for a variety of reasons. But these people, they had a heart for God, and they wanted to see people transformed with the gospel. 
So they decided to go door to door to get to know their neighbors and share about their church. They went to one large home. They knocked on the door, a man opened the door, and they began to share about their church. He looked at them squarely in the face and said, I have everything I need. I don't need God. And then slammed the door. (laughs) They were taken back, hurt, confused, didn't know what to do, didn't know what to say. And when they relayed that story to me, I could feel the hurt and pain within their souls because they wanted others to know the good news of Jesus. And yet many people had thought of material items as the way of of looking at God's blessing. And we know now that as societies have modernized more and more, and while God has blessed and given us many different things, that doesn't fill the whole in every single one of our hearts. In fact, that man's response became really a life lesson for me as I began to see many other people find their identity and their strength and their security and their wealth and in their money. I've seen that script play out time and time again, especially when I see people coming into our country who come from backgrounds or places where they didn't have very much, especially from majority world cultures. For many of them, they are Christian. They they knew Jesus. They worshiped him. They fasted. They prayed. They were in all-night prayer meetings. They would read the Bible all the time. They would be in choirs and, and sing God's praises. And then they would find themselves in the United States. Either they were refugees or asylees, or maybe they were just coming here to study and granted the opportunity to do so. And it was an awesome opportunity that they had in front of them. It wouldn't be too long, however, that you would see once they arrived in the United States, they would get into a church, but what you would see happen over time is that their their zeal would begin to dissipate, and they would begin to acquire more and more things, cars, clothes, status. They would send photos of themselves and put it out online so other people would see it and notice how great they were or how much they had achieved and everything that they had done. While at the same time, often proportionally, as their status increased and all of their finances increased, you would see their zeal for God begin to dissipate. For many of us, we have placed our desire or our trust in other things rather than God, if we're honest. We trust ourselves, we trust our intellect, we trust our education, we trust uh, all of the things that we have rather than God. And it's not until those things begin to be taken away that we really turn back to God. Isn't that the way it is for every one of us? That's why C.S. Lewis said time and time again, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts to us in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. True. We don't think we need God, but COVID has tried to, COVID has really brought that back to the forefront. We need God. The phrase, in God we trust, is found throughout Scripture. You can find it in Psalm 118.8, Psalm 40, verse 3, Psalm 73, verse 28, and also in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25. But the main way that most Americans know about this today, it's because it is found upon our money. It was placed on our money by an act of the 84th Congress and approved by President Dwight D. Eisenhower in 1956. Many may not realize it is that 
While our current paper money points back to that act, it actually appeared on our coin money all the way back to 1864. And that came about in a roundabout way. Some have cited the words as part of Francis Scott Key's Star Spangled Banner, written during the War of 1812, that has a line in the song that says, And this be our motto, In God is our trust. Yet, It wasn't until Reverend M.R. Watkinson wrote a letter to the Secretary of the Treasury, Salmon P. Chase, that we should add a statement that recognizes Almighty God in some form on our coins in order to, as he says, relieve us from the ignominy of heathenism. The word ignominy means public shame or distress. He wanted to show that it was God who we really trusted in, not the paper itself. It was God who we looked to. I was speaking to a friend of mine in India about the differences between the U.S. and India. He said, a big difference between the U.S. and India is that you had the Bible at your foundation, and we did not. That made me think, what do we trust in? While we had the Bible as a foundation, many of us have cut ourselves off from it or are ignorant of the very foundations that are in front of us everywhere we go. For many of us, that trust right now is being eroded, is being tested. COVID has really changed or brought to the forefront what it is that we've been trusting in. What are we trusting in? What has God showed you that you're trusting in right now? I mean, what are you trusting in? Are you trusting in God? Is that just a phrase that you use? I find that most people just do that. They say, trust in God, and they really have no idea what that means. For many of us, it's just this generic saying that we use to fill the void of our lives, some vague idea of something that is greater than ourselves. But the Bible presents something totally different. When we say, in God we trust, what do we really mean? Who do we really trust in? Who is this God of the Bible and what has he done for us? What has he done for you? And what does he want us to do for him? Whenever we use the phrase trusting in God, we're talking about the God of the Bible. That's what I mean when I refer to trusting in God. It's not any deity. It's not this American moral therapeutic deity. No, it is the one true God, the God of the Bible. Not the God of Islam, not the God of Hinduism, not any other God or goddess that's in this world, not any other ideal or subject, not ourselves, not our own conscience, not our own mental belief about who we are, not our identity. It's about the God of the Bible. That is the God who we only can trust in because he's the only God who exists. So whenever I'm talking about the God of the Bible, I'm talking about the one true God and what he has done for us. So before we really get into things today, I want us to go through the lens of God's word because that's where we find out who God is. Without the Bible, we have absolutely nothing. We have only our reason and our reason when it's cut off from God's revelation runs amok and we start thinking all kinds of crazy things. The Bible brings us in and shows us who God is. And without that, we've got 
nothing to stand on. So today we're going to look at through the lens of God's word, and we're going to jump into this passage to see this God before whom we come and what he has done in, in the lives of his people and how we are to respond to that. So let's get started. We're in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 19 through 24. Not a passage that many of us are familiar with, at least from the get-go, as we just take a cursory glance at it. But when we probe down deep, I think many of us who have been in church for any period of time, you may be familiar at least with this passage. So I'm going to read Lamentations 3, 19 through 24. And this is what we read. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. Remember that song? If you've grown up, you've heard that song. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. It's a great, great song, one that's been taught throughout the generations. I love that song, and I love just to take the opportunity to spend some time in worship. But I want to get back to our book. Lamentations is a book that most of us are unfamiliar with. Now, most scholars believe that Jeremiah the prophet wrote it, and it's a communal it's a communal mourning over the destruction of Jerusalem and the Jewish temple. So the date is between 586 and 516 BC. It targets not only one's life situation, but also one's spiritual condition. It's the response of the people in the midst of judgment. It's, it's them crying out, saying, this is what, what are we to think? They could be angry. They could, they could just cry out in, in, in frustration and pain, but they call out in lamentation. They're lamenting their sin because they recognize that at the ultimate foundation of everything is the fact that they turn their life away from God. It's the response of this people in the middle of garbage, of junk, of pain, of frustration. And our passage today is the key verse to this entire book. And what does God give, give us in this? And he's calling us to remember his faithfulness in the midst of our chaos. That's what he was saying to them. And that's the principle that we can draw from it now. Here, they were in chaos because of God's judgment. Are you right now? What are you going through? Are you experiencing the consequences for sinful choices that you've made? There are physical laws of this world, such as the law of gravity. Try to ignore that law and you will suffer, suffer the penalty for it. The same is true spiritually. When you try to go against what God says and does in his word, you will suffer the consequences and penalty for it. It might be right away or it could be many years from now, but I guarantee that you will suffer for it. We all do. I can testify this my own life. It reminds me of the story that in December 2017, my newsfeed had this story about a 26-year-old Chinese daredevil, Wu Yongning, who had posted nearly 300 of his rooftoping videos online, and he amassed a million followers. It's, it's incredible. He was one of the, those daredevil guys that you can see on YouTube, known for scaling skyscrapers without safety equipment to snap some incredible and scary selfies. Anyone who would watch him or his videos would have their... their not a not form in the pit of their stomach. I would watch it and I'd be like, ah, you know, you're just seeing him walk along the edge and the camera's looking straight down the edge of a building. I mean, he was a stunt man who had worked in film, but he got careless. 
and tempted the law of gravity and lost his grip on a stunt and fell to his death. It was tragic. And I use him to illustrate the, the point that there are spiritual laws just like the physical laws of gravity. That if we're trying to tempt it, we're going to find ourselves suffering the consequences, the tragic consequences of those choices. Young Ning's consequences were immediate, but others are in our life are often delayed. But they will, as they always do, come. This podcast is meant for those people. If that's you, that's you. Meaning that it's meant for people that have been through life. You've been through the ringer. You know exactly what I am talking about. And you can testify wholeheartedly of making choices and tempting God and putting yourself out there. And you have suffered the pain and have the scars on your soul to show what it's like to veer away from God. And God has called you back. That's exactly what happened to the Jews during Jeremiah's time. They'd been warned time and time again, but they didn't listen. They were tempting God, in essence. They began to worship false gods secretly. Even some of the Jewish leaders were doing it. They practiced child sacrifice, which today I would say is the equivalent of abortion. And and they're sacrificing one's child, that's what's going on today, for the sake of convenience, success, or finance, or some reason. It could be a a variety of reasons, and you can contact me and say all the reasons why a person has gone about it. I, I don't care. It's still killing one's child. Now, the woman needs ministering too, okay? I'm not getting off on that subject right now. And we will say, oh, just completely that that woman needs ministering too. And there is forgiveness in and through Christ. But I want to say and show that what was going on in the Old Testament was not so far removed from where we're at today, that people are still doing these kinds of things. And it got so bad then that they were practicing cannibalism and even ate their dead children. They had a deep and persistent attachment to their gods and the goddesses of their time. And many, we have many false gods and goddesses in our day, many idols that we will follow and sacrifice to in order to find that fulfillment or what that idol offers us. Either it's success, we think it's pleasure, we think it's comfort, we think it's joy, we think it's status, we think it's anything, and we will sacrifice anything to attain that. And the Israelites did the same thing. And they were, they had become idolaters and they were looking to themselves, money and power for their protection rather than God. So God raised up prophets to warn them and plead for them to repent. But when there are true prophets, I guarantee this, false prophets aren't far behind. And false prophets rose up and said that there was no judgment coming, nothing to see here, nothing to happen, don't worry about it. They told people what they wanted to hear. But God brought the hammer down. He rebuked them through Jeremiah. Jeremiah pleaded with God's people with tears, but they wouldn't listen. So finally, he brought judgment upon them and such a judgment that they couldn't even begin to fathom the awful nature of it. He was simply withdrawing his hand of protection. That's what God was doing and allowing to take place what he had been protecting them from. And since they refused to obey or listen, he did remove his hand to show the extent of how bad their evil really was. Their sons would die by violence. Their daughters would die by starvation. There would be rape of wives, mothers, and children. There would be no one to bury them, there would be disease, and their shame would have been unbearable. Jerusalem was protected by walls and was under 
siege by the Babylonians for about two and a half years. When the walls were finally breached, the Jewish king, Zedekiah, tried to flee, but was captured not far away. He was 33 years old and had younger sons. After he was captured, King Nebuchadnezzar had his sons slaughtered in front of his face. And then he put his eyes out, changed him, chained him up, and carried him captive to Babylon, where he remained a prisoner until he died. Nebuchadnezzar plundered the city, pulled down the walls, and destroyed the temple. It was perhaps the most awful day in all of Jewish history. Can you imagine that being that king? Knowing you had the opportunity to stop this whole thing, but everybody around you is like, no, 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 no. And Jeremiah is saying, yes, yes, surrender, do this, you'll find peace. It's going to be pain. There are consequences that are out there, but you, you, can, you can't escape them, but you can't escape the worst of them. And instead of listening to Jeremiah, he listened to these other guys around. And then what happens is he watches his sons die in front of his face. That's the last image that he sees before his eyes are taken out. It's a gruesome, gruesome picture, but no one ever said that the Bible was G-rated. It is not for a Veggie Tales episode. We come back to our passage for today, and we read in verse 19, remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. He begins by asking God to see where he is. He knows that he is in this awful situation because of the sin of God's people. Jeremiah is asking God to remember his suffering and the fact that he has no home. Now, wormwood is a bitter herb from a bitter tasting shrub, and it's used for medicinal purposes. And gall was similar. It was... A, a plant with a watermelon-like fruit with extremely bitter-tasting pulp and was also used for medicinal purpose, purposes. Now, metaphorically, he acknowledges that he is suffering, homeless, and it's a bitter thing for him to go through. That's what he's talking about in this passage. Now, why did they go through such an awful judgment? It was because of their sin. And for us, it most often comes from the sin that we have done. Have you ever wondered why you're in the state or situation that you're in? And, and there could be many reasons, but one of them could be that you're suffering the consequences of choices you made. We all have to deal with consequences for our actions. Sometimes that's minor, sometimes it's major, and sometimes others have to suffer because of choices we have made. I've seen so many people in situations where they are stuck because they refuse to obey God, and rather than obey God and do the difficult work of obedience, they sought to take shortcuts and make their situation and made their situation even worse. Don't blame God. Take responsibility for your own actions. Let's look at verse 20. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. He's talking about guilt and shame. Shame is not something that we talk about a lot in the West, but in the East, it is a well-known concept. Indeed, it is the social currency by which people move around. Jews were ashamed and, and this, at the state of their city showed it. He, they couldn't shake it. Jeremiah couldn't shake it. He was broken. We read in Lamentations chapter 5, verse 1, Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. He then describes the level of their shame. Their inheritance was turned over to strangers. They'd become orphans and fatherless, which was a huge shame because you had no family to belong to. The mothers were like widows, helpless. They had to pay for water and wood, and the Babylonians didn't give them any rest. They had to bear the consequences for the sins of their fathers and slaves. 
The lowest of society were ruling over them. The women were raped. Food was scarce. It was bad. And they couldn't shake it. The Lord humiliated them, had thrown them down, brought them to a place of dishonor. As Daniel would describe when they were in captivity in Daniel chapter 9, verse 7 through 8, Lord, you are in the right, but as you see, our faces are covered with shame. This is true of all of us, including the people of Judah and Jerusalem and all Israel, scattered near and far, wherever you have driven us because of our disloyalty to you. O Lord, we and our kings, princes, and ancestors are covered with shame because we have sinned against you. There is a level of shame we bear when we turn away from God, when it comes to sin. Adam and Eve were naked and ashamed, causing them to lose face. All Jews had lost face because their disgrace was everywhere. They were mocked by their enemies. They'd become the butt of jokes. Their sons and daughters were taken from them, put into slavery. They had to deal with having everything taken away from them and their names being dragged through the mud. There is a level of shame that comes from our sin. It causes us to want to hide from our friends and relatives. One only need to think of criminals caught, and as they are taken outside and put into a car, they try to put their hands over their face to cover their shame so that others do not see them. Lamentations is the second book of Jeremiah, and the first book is a prediction of what would and did happen to Jerusalem, its people, and the temple. And do you know that one of the key words and ideas in this book is shame, shame, disgrace, reproach, dishonor. When we fail to obey God, there is a level of shame we must all bear. But here's the really cool thing about God. He takes away our shame when we turn to him. He was shamed on our behalf. He can take away your shame. He can make you clean, spotless, pure. He is the only one that can take away our shame. In our culture, in the West, people make apologies to try to remove their shame. But in a culture such as the Jewish culture, shame could, be not, could not be taken away by just simply making an apology. It could only be taken away by someone in a more honorable position who could elevate them out of their disgrace. Shame then leads to overwhelming sorrow. He's not just shamed, but he's overwhelmed to the point where he can't even raise up his head. He's in a bitter situation. Some of you today that are listening feel that. You know the pain of disobeying God's command. You know what shame is firsthand, and you feel overwhelming sorrow. Not all sorrow is a result of sin. That's not the kind I'm talking about. This sorrow is the byproduct of regret and the knowledge that it could have been prevented. But here is the key to this sorrow. Does it become the impetus to spur you to repentance? Or does it become the sorrow whereby you sulk feel sorry for yourself and blame someone else, even going so far as to blame God? Hmm. You know, the Bible does talk about this kind of sorrow. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, for the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. Does your sorrow help you turn back to God? Are you sorry for your sins, or are you simply sorry for yourself and how others now perceive you? It's in times like this that we have to go back to the Bible and see who God is. If we want to understand ourselves, then we need to have God show us the true state of our condition. And for this to happen requires us to change our perspective. Perspective influences everything about what we do and what we see. Look at verse 21. 
but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. He has to remind himself of truth. He preaches to his soul. Whenever we're going through a tough time, whenever we are experiencing the consequences of our choices and God's disciplining hand, we have to remember who God is. There are times when we are so overwhelmed, shamed, guilt-ridden that we want to give up. Do you want to give up right now? Don't. This is the moment that we have to preach to our souls, preach to ourselves and run to God. Do you feel as if God has forsaken you? He hasn't. He's right there with you right now. Do you feel that God doesn't want you anymore? That God doesn't care about you? Then you need to hear this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. This is the truth that we have to preach to ourselves. And we have to remind ourselves of this because we forget all the time. There's a great deal of what we have to do in the day in and day out of our lives. And we know that we're going to struggle and in that we're going to suffer. And we are going to feel like God doesn't care and that he doesn't love us anymore. But it's then that we have to remember that his love is unceasing. His love is incredible. And it is unceasing. God is always love. And even when he judged the Israelites for their sin and when he disciplines us, he shows his love for us. Imagine for a moment, if you're a parent, that your child continues to play with a knob on the stove, turning the gas on and off. Now you might tell her no, and then she proceeds to do it a few more times, leaving the gas on that it fills the house. What do you do if she keeps doing it? You discipline her. Why? Because you want what is best for her. You don't want to do something that would endanger her because you, because you love her. God loves you. He warns us to stay away from sin, and he brings discipline, sometimes severely, because he loves you so much. His love is unceasing. His love is supremely seen in Jesus. As we read in John 3.16, that very well-known passage, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God loves you so much that he gave his Son to die for you. He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. He desires your repentance. That's what we all need to realize, is that his love is unceasing and his mercy is unending. His mercies never come to an end. The word is used actually to describe compassion. God is compassionate toward us. He's intimately concerned with our well-being and does not treat us as our sins deserve. Whenever we feel like we failed and blown it in our lives and that God doesn't care about us, we have to remember that his mercy is unending. And when we come to him in repentance, we will find that God is ready to forgive. You can check that out in Nehemiah 
What sin are you holding on to that you think God will not forgive? He forgives the worst of the worst. He forgives of murder, sexual sins, violence, greed, racism, hate, idolatry, and the like. That's the magnificence of Jesus' death. It wasn't just for the socially acceptable sins, but the unacceptable ones as well. We have undervalued what happened on the cross and the evil that he took upon himself. He took the worst of the worst, and it's by Jesus' death we find mercy. Jesus took the wrath of the Father that we deserved, and he offers us mercy. He offers you mercy. You don't have to try and earn it or buy it or manipulate it. It's there because of what Jesus has done for you. And you will also find that his faithfulness is unabating. It means not weakening or losing intensity. That means they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. It doesn't stop. He's merciful to us. Today, yesterday, tomorrow, next year, his mercy doesn't get weaker if you keep sinning. In fact, God's mercy and grace increase where there's sin. Paul spoke about this in Romans chapter 5, verse 20 through 21. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, meaning God gave us the law so that we might be aware that we are sinners. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you sin, know that God's grace is greater than your sin. Don't pretend to make your sin look less than it is. Declare what it is in all of its ugliness. Don't let shame try to make you marginalize it. Declare it and see it for what it is. But understand that God's grace is more beautiful and the reality of what it is is far greater than any shame, any guilt, or any condemnation that the devil wants to throw at us. God's grace is for you. It's not just for the kindergarten child in Sunday school class, but it's for the adult the idolater, the thief, the gossip, the fornicator, the liar, and the murderer. God's grace is sufficient for you. I want to focus on verse 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. You see, there's a choice that we must make. We have to consciously put our trust in God. That's what this entire message is about. It's about trusting in God's faithfulness, handing over the keys of our lives. The Lord is my portion is a translation that I'm not quite sure communicates the full meaning. The New Living Translation puts it this way. I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance. Therefore, I will hope in him. For the Israelites, this was huge. The promised land had been their inheritance, and now they were being taken away from it. It was shameful to be kicked out of their ancestral lands. But here we see Jeremiah stating that our hope was really not in the promised land or in the temple, but in God himself. You see, for us, we have to realize that our trust is not in our government or its leaders, not in our history, not in our ability or ingenuity. It has to be in God alone. That's what stewardship ultimately is about. Understanding that it is God who gives us the ability to have a job and earn money. 
It is God who gives us the abilities to serve him, to do things for him. We have to consciously put our trust in him with our marriages, our jobs, our careers, our family, our spouses, our children, and our money. For us to do this, then, we have to do three things. First up, it requires us to repent of our sins. You can't have God without repentance. Before we can turn to God and receive anything from him, we must recognize the evil that we have done. Jeremiah puts it succinctly what the Israelites were guilty of in Jeremiah 2, 12 through 13. He says, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountains of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What is the problem? They turn from God and try to create other things and treat them like God. Do you do that? If you turn away from God, you have to turn to something else. If you refuse to acknowledge God, it means you already have some other functional God in your heart. And that God cannot handle all of your life. It can't give you happiness. It can't get you through the suffering. It will inevitably lead to destruction because it is no God at all. The Israelites turned from God and tried to create other things and treat them like God. And in order to get back to God, we have to turn back. Repentance means turning away from what God has decreed as evil and turning back to him. Repentance is simply the description of what it means to go to God. It's what turning to God looks like. It means abandoning the evil in our hearts and embracing him. And then it requires us to realize our new identity. God becomes our inheritance. He is our life. He's not a part of our life, but our life. Knowing who Jesus is and what he has done, and then to know what he has given us through Christ, enabling us to become children of God, he then becomes our primary identity. And that identity shapes every other identity that we have. If God is God and what Jesus did on the cross is true, and he really did rise from the dead after three days and then ascended into heaven, then that defines life. It's, it defines what we know about the universe, creation, life, love, and everything else. God then defines what sin is, and we place ourselves under that truth, knowing we are condemned because the Bible calls what we do in love is sin. It might seem natural to us, but if God has decreed it as it is, then it's evil. No matter how we might feel about it, no matter how good it feels, no matter how much society says it's good or the government says it's good and okay, or even science might say that we're animals and that's what you're to do. Nope, we're not animals. And our desires are fallen. Even if our friends and family say it's good, we can't continue doing it because he has defined our identity and because he has defined who we are. Then he defines what we do, how we live. Is Christ your identity? If not, why not? Lastly, we need to rest in his promises. This passage, along with several others, is asking us to trust in God. In the middle of chaos, as we suffer the consequences of our sins, or we find ourselves in difficult situations, we can rest in his promises. He has promised to be there for us, to never leave us or forsake us. In fact, later on down in this passage, we read in Lamentations 3, 25 through 33, The Lord is good to those who depend on him, to those who search for him. 
So it is good to wait quietly for salvation from the Lord. And it is good for people to submit at an early age to the yoke of his discipline. Let them sit alone in silence beneath the Lord's demands. Let them lie face down in the dust, for there may be hope at last. Let them turn the other cheek to those who strike them and accept the insults of their enemies, for no one is abandoned by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he also shows compassion because of the greatness of his unfailing love, for he does not enjoy hurting his people or causing them sorrow. Resting in his promises means waiting for him to act rather than us taking matters into our own hands. It is in God we trust, not in our money, not in our fame, not in our abilities. These are promises that will be realized. And it's not dependent on us, but on the God who made us. Before we leave our time together today, I need to ask you a question. Do you know him? Are you trusting in him? We know that we can entrust everything to him because he is faithful. We need to show that trust by committing ourselves to him anew. And you can show it by trusting in him with your life and salvation, by declaring your faith in baptism, by uniting and joining with believers in a church, by practicing generosity even when times are tough. We do it by our everyday lives and the everyday small decisions that we make. And we can do it together. I'm not above you, I'm with you. Let me be your cheerleader. Let me encourage you in this. Let's do it together. We can trust in him because he is trustworthy. That's it for today's episode, everybody. I trust that you are learning and that you are growing. And I trust and pray that God uses this to help you in your walk with Jesus, that you might water your world. If this episode has been an encouragement to you, would you share it with other people? Please give us a like, rate this podcast, that others may come and experience the joy of knowing Jesus. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or go to our Facebook page and interact with other followers of Jesus, members of Apollos Army, who want to grow and water their worlds. Each week, we will have questions posted on our Facebook page that you can respond to and interact with. So check that out. You'll be glad that you did. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody. Do 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 do